0: Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual
1: abuse. Our host is Shaughnessy Terrell, an attorney on Cohen and Milad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney for the Marion County Prosecutor's Office Special Victims Unit. She will explore resources available to help survivors on their path to healing and how the community can come together to help these survivors and find ways to end sexual abuse. This is Support for Survivors.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse, as well as professionals and allies within the field of sexual abuse and assault. I'm your host, Shauna St. Terrell, and I'm an attorney on the sexual abuse litigation team at Cohen and Malad, an Indianapolis law firm litigating on behalf of survivors all across the country. Before we get into the meat of our discussion today, I wanna make sure that listeners know that this interview is going to go into deep detail as it relates to something a lot of survivors have been through, the sexual assault medical forensic examination. We will discuss how invasive it is and how it can further traumatize people who have often only just been through a deeply horrifying event. Those of you who have been through it understand what I am saying. Those of you who haven't, don't, period. As I sit here today after having prosecuted hundreds of these cases, Having both direct-examined and cross-examined medical professionals as to these exams, I cannot 100% understand the experience. Our guest, who has conducted hundreds, if not thousands, of these exams cannot 100% understand what it's like to go through it as a patient. None of us knows until we've been there. That's why I asked today's guest to come on the podcast so that people can be more educated about this. And for those of you who have been there, please know that we're going to get into details and this discussion may not be one that is helpful for you right now. Please take care of yourself. With that, I am very pleased to welcome Barb Bachmeyer to the show today. Barb is not only a family nurse practitioner and advanced practice forensic nurse examiner, she is also an attorney. Barb helped to found the Academy of Forensic Nursing and was awarded the National Emergency Nursing Association Nurses Practice and Professionalism Award in 2018. As if all of that isn't impressive enough, Barb served her country for 29 years in the United States Army National Guard, retiring as lieutenant colonel. So I think basically what I'm saying is Barb is probably that kid in school who killed the curve at every test, and she probably spent a lot of Friday nights alone. (laughs) I'm just messing with you. I'm kidding. Barb's a dear friend, and I feel lucky you know her. Hi, Barb. Thank you for coming on.
1: Yes. Thank you, Shaughnessy. Um, good afternoon. Thank you for having. Um, and just as a disclaimer, no, I wasn't one of those kids that uh, <laughs> kids every time and was home every Friday night. That was not me. <laughs> I <laughs> later,
0: know. Uh,
1: later in life, Barb's, I became more motivated.
0: <laughs> Barb's very fun. Very fun. So, okay. I want to get right down to it today because this is a complex topic and I really want to be able to get into the nuances of what a medical forensic sexual assault exam is why it's necessary, what it actually looks like, and to some extent, what it feels like. So Barb, why don't you just briefly tell us uh, a little bit about your background, starting with how long you've been a nurse?
1: Okay, Um, I started out as a licensed practical nurse in LPN and uh, graduated in 1982, went on to pursue my baccalaureate um, in nursing at North Dakota State University and subsequently went on um, to Indiana University, Purdue University of Indianapolis to pursue, pursue my adult nurse practitioner and graduated in 1994. Um, since then, um, I have uh, obtained my doctorate um, in jurisprudence in 2007. My uh, nursing career has focused um, initially on trauma in intensive care. And then eventually into the emergency department where I developed a love for forensic nursing, starting out as a sexual assault nurse examiner. And then basically expanded our practice at our institution at Indiana University um, Methodist, uh, where we see all patients of interpersonal violence.
0: Okay, real quick, why in the world did you go to law school?
1: I I blame that on uh, working in the early years in the emergency department. Um, When I started there as a nurse practitioner in 1995, I was seeing a lot of child abuse, uh, sexual and physical. And I thought that that was an area that is not touched on um, in undergraduate or graduate school. So I looked around the city of Indianapolis to see what type of uh, volunteer work that I could do just to learn more about it. And I stumbled upon this wonderful organization called child advocates where I uh, volunteered as a guardian ad litem for children that were um, children in need of services taken out of their home, either to abuse or neglect, and I was the child's voice in court. Of course, um, working with those children and all the service providers in in the community, um, I felt that I said, you know, this is something I would love to do is legally advocate for these children. So I went back to law school with the sole purpose of doing um, child law. So, and well, here That's and quite
0: a story. Uh, you know, a lot of people see needs, but they don't go to law school to fill them. So it's so cool to hear. Uh, you mentioned before that you fell in love with forensic nursing when you were in the emergency department.
1: Can you tell us what that is? And it's basically a nursing um, practice uh, where nursing and health and legal all intersect.
0: Okay. And we're going to talk a little bit more later about the um, training and education requirements it takes to be able to perform sexual assault exams. Just so people know that you truly do know what you're talking about. You don't just have the education and training, you have the experience. How many sexual assault exams have you conducted on patients?
1: Uh, specifically sexual assault exams, probably over a thousand um, over, since 1999. That's a lot. Yes, it is. Um,
0: you know, you, when you hear those numbers, you hate that there are those many and they're that many and it's just a drop in the bucket as to how many assaults actually occur. So in terms of the exam, let's start out with the absolute basics. What is a medical forensic sexual assault examination?
1: Now the medical forensic exam can be a, a variation from a history all the way to evidence collection to medical treatment. So our job is to ensure that um, we discuss with the patient what exactly a medical forensic exam is, which is a thorough um, head to toe evaluation, um, looking for any um, potential injuries and concern for an infection and evidence collection along with that.
0: Okay, so we're talking first and foremost priority here is medical care, but then also where you are collecting evidence for a potential litigation in the future. And I, I think that what a lot of people refer to this as is going and getting a rape kit done. I think that's what we, we refer to it colloquially, just in everyday talk. And d- just to make sure people know, we don't, the proper name isn't rape kit. It's actually a sexual assault evidence kit. And that's what these medical professionals use when they're doing these sexual assault examinations to collect all of those different things that come off of a person's body after they've been sexually assaulted. And it really is, it's a cardboard box. I'm not good with measurements, so I can't, maybe you are Barb, I don't know, but it's just a mid-sized cardboard box that contains all of these different tools by which you use to collect this stuff. So real quick, Will you walk us through what is typically included in the sexual assault kit? Now, I know that the contents vary greatly by state, by jurisdiction, even by sometimes um, hospitals, you know, have different, they'll use some of the tools and not all of them. And then, of course, things change as our technology gets better. But generally speaking, what are some of those things that are included in the box when you first open it up to do a sexual assault exam? It
1: is a variety of evidence paper bags that you would be used to collect any type of clothing in it. It also will contain multiple swabs, and that is for the purpose of uh, swabbing certain areas of the body in order to collect potential evidence, again, based upon the history the patient provides you. It also has like a paper ruler in there, so you can um, help measure during your photography any type of injuries. And the whole purpose is is trying to get as much of the evidence into Mm -hmm. that box as possible. But obviously, if there's clothing involved, you're going to have to bag that and um, seal that separately outside the box. Sure.
0: And then who decides what goes in those boxes? Is
1: there like a a body somewhere of
0: experts who decide what should be inside the kits that go out into the medical facilities?
1: So usually it's a task force of crime lab personnel. (laughs) And forensic nurses Um, and sometimes attorneys um, sit on that also. So we all sit down and figure out what is going to be best in the kit, what has helped extrapolate DNA in the past, what is the new technology, could we get rid of something, do we need to add something. So there is a thoughtful group out there that does think you know, critically about what is exactly needed in that kit. Because once you open it, you really Mm -hmm. need everything there to make everything better and obviously not to overwhelm the patient with unnecessary evidence collection. I think it's great that you have this body of
0: experts who are doing that—people who are actually in the trenches doing the exams and laboratory analysts who are examining the contents. Because you know you have to have some foresight here, especially science develops so quickly and technology develops so quickly. I know that I think the law takes a little bit longer to catch up sometimes than other fields do. So it's good that you all are staying on top of that. I would like to have just a quick sidebar on the sexual assault evidence kits and the organized tracking of them. I don't wanna get into the weeds on this, but there's been a lot of attention in the press in recent years as to the backlog of kits around the nation and a call for a tracking system of the kits so that victims know the status of testing. Uh, under the direction of the state legislature in Indiana, I chaired the Indiana Sexual Assault Response Team Advisory Council, who is tasked with doing an audit of sexual assault kits in property rooms and crime labs across the state Barb served with me on that body. Together with the Indiana State Police Laboratory Division, the Indiana Criminal Justice Institute, and Victims Advocates, we were able to get a system developed over the last few years and it was implemented earlier this year. So it's live, it's being used. We could spend hours on sexual assault kit tracking systems. The journey it took for us to get one started in Indiana the pitfalls and lessons learned along the way. That's not what we're here for today. That'll be another discussion on another day. We will go through that. I think that some time needs to pass first because it is still so new that, um, you you know, some of these things you learn as you go and you get better at it. So I just wanna make sure that listeners know there is a system in Indiana and it is there. So victims now do know where their kids are at all times. And it does add some checks and balances for those professionals working within the criminal justice system. Okay, so back to the exam. I think we talked about before, two main goals of the exam. First and foremost, obviously, is that your patient is receiving the proper medical care. And then secondly, preserving any DNA evidence that could possibly be used in the future. Is that fair to say?
1: Yes, obviously, the first and foremost is making sure that we do administer the medical care because there's been many times that incidentally that we have found some type of medical issues that have nothing to do with the assault and we just can't ignore that.
0: Definitely an important point for people to know that the examiner, the medical professional who's seeing a patient, their priority and who they work for is is the medical priority and their um, employer. They don't work for the government. They don't work for law enforcement or the prosecutor. What they're there for is to help that patient with their medical needs and then as a tangential goal to collect any evidence that may still be on the body. So where do the exams take place? Like where do victims usually, where do they go to get an exam if they have been sexually
1: assaulted? The most common place is in a hospital emergency department or can be a community location such as a YMCA and then there are some universities that do have their own at their student health centers that conduct um, medical forensic exams for university students that have been sexually assaulted. And probably a less common, but I'm sure they're out there, is actually have it in a medical provider's office.
0: So it sounds like it can vary widely as to where it takes place and ultimately who does the exam, who administers it. Will you talk a little bit about the Center of Hope model in Indianapolis, what we do here, because I think that it is good and it is something that other jurisdictions could possibly
1: learn something from. Sure, there is six Center of Hope institutions within Marion County in Indiana. And two of them are pediatric focused with one of the hospitals that does peds. They also do all ages, they do adults. The other four institutions, usually like 12 years old and older, Mm -hmm. prepubescent exams usually are ages 12 and younger, and where adolescent and the adult are usually around, you know, 13 years and older.
0: Just to stop you real quick so everybody knows. So what she just described was the difference between a SANE A and a SANE P. SANE stands for Sexual Assault Nurse Examiner. So... We are going to talk here in a second about what a saying is and all of the training that they have to go through to become a sexual assault nurse examiner. But then even once they've done that training, they're kind of split. It's two different things. There's A, which is for adults, and P, which is for pediatrics. So as Barb said, if you've got an adult... Versus a child patient who's coming in for this exam, it is gonna be markedly different. We will probably talk a little bit more in depth today about the way the adult exams work, but we will discuss pediatrics, and then we will have another episode another day that will go further into pediatric exams. So, sorry, Barb, back to you. We're talking about the Center of Hope model.
1: Yes, yeah, so basically, all these institutions are in hospitals. Usually affiliated with um, the emergency department as well as their physical location of it. So, again, within those institutions, each program is run a little bit different, anywhere from an on call position where the same is actually called in when sexual assaults present to the emergency department, or there are the forensic nurses staffed in the emergency department caring for other patients, and when a patient who has been sexually assaulted arrives, that nurse is taken from that assignment to care for that patient. And then a third model is to have staff 24-7 in-house where the sole responsibilities and duties of that forensic nurse are to care for patients of interpersonal violence and trauma.
0: That's an important point, too. Within these Centers of Hope, as um, they're called, you're not just helping victims of sexual assault. It's all forms of interpersonal violence, correct? Like domestic violence and intimate partner violence, kind of the whole shebang? Correct. Okay. Now let's talk about what a sexual assault nurse examiner is. And we will say sane from the rest of the session because that's what we always call them, sanes. So what, what is a sane? How do you become a sane?
1: to be a sane as i mentioned earlier you have to have be a registered nurse within the state of indiana or advanced practice provider now advanced practice provider can be a nurse practitioner a certified nurse midwife or even a physician assistant or a Mm -hmm. clinical nurse specialist now can physicians do medical forensic exams yes they can and in some of the rural areas that sometimes Mm -hmm. ends up doing the exams okay our medical providers because there is no sane located at that hospital that's so, a
0: really important point that i think we need to flesh out a little bit more that not only is it going to vary even within the same city sometimes but certainly if you're in a more of a metropolitan area versus a rural area your experience is going to be very very different just because there are not enough things certainly in indiana and i think this is probably a national problem we do not have enough We just don't. And there's another project going on right now to try to train up more nurses to be saints to fill in some of those gaps in some of those more rural areas. Because frankly, if a person has just been sexually assaulted, they shouldn't have to get in the car for three hours to get to a hospital or have somebody who is qualified to give them a sexual assault examination. That's ridiculous. So we're trying, we're working on that, right, Barb? Yes. Yeah. But yeah. Um, getting ahead. back to <laughs> getting back to the SANS, uh, we talk a little bit about the training required
1: Yes. If you are a registered nurse advanced practice provider, there is a course called the Sexual Assault Nurse Examiner Course. It's a 40-hour didactic course. Once you complete that 40-hour course, the clinical director of that institution where you are hired is responsible for developing the nursing clinical competencies. There is a certain clinical competencies, a SANE has to perform in order for her to be deemed safe to go practice as a forensic nurse and care for these patients who have experienced sexual violence. The Indiana SANE project, which was a grant given to help train SANE's in the state of Indiana, we host a two-day SANE clinical training where we bring nurses in that have completed their training and they go through this 16 hour plus course
0: this is not easy. This is a lot. So you're you talking about all of the education you had to do to become a nurse in the first place. You've already done that. You've been a nurse for a while. You have to have at least some experience, I believe, before you take this course. And it's, it's intense. And it really takes a special person to really put forth the effort to do that. I've taught at these courses for the last several years. That's actually how Barb and I met. We were doing a mock trial. And because I was, this is a funny thing, but because I was a defense attorney before I was prosecutor, they asked, they're like, Shaughnessy, you do the cross-examination. I was like, okay, yeah, that's okay, and uh, it was Barb, and we had never met, and I was just, so I was just like a total jerk. I was lighting her up. She, She stood strong. She, you know, didn't have any issues and did a really good job, which is good because we were doing it in front of like 100 people, and that's how we became friends. We've been pretty good friends ever since then, and we've got a great working relationship, and we get to do a lot of trainings together. We just had an article published together, so pretty cool stuff. We talked a little bit before about the differences between a SANE A, which is a nurse who will be doing exams on adults, and a SANE P, which is a nurse who will be doing exams on children or pediatrics. Is there a difference in the training between a SANE A and a SANE P?
1: Definitely. A same piece still requires you have a 40-hour didactic, but the curriculum is obviously a little bit different, and the evidence collection part is way different. You have developmental issues that you need to address. You always have to worry about suggestibility with uh, certain ages, so there's certain ways that you ask questions that you have to be careful about. Definitely not leaving questions or anything like that, but if there's a big difference between a medical history and a forensic interview. And sometimes nurses tend to get those blurry and ask questions that really should be left to the forensic interview.
0: That's a really important point. And so, so listeners know what a forensic interview is. They're interviewed by a professional called a forensic interviewer who asks open-ended questions and tries to figure out what exactly happened. So is there a law in Indiana that requires the medical professional to have been through any of this sexual assault training
1: before no. they
0: can do the exam?
1: No. Um, there is some language in the law about performing some exams, let's say on an incapacitated patient, but there's nothing saying that you definitely have to be a sexual assault nurse examiner to uh, perform these medical front day exams, which is why physicians do them sometimes. and and uh, physician assistants and that type of medical.
0: Yeah, in that regard, I think it's a little bit of the Wild West. Another thing that we're trying to do is shore those up and provide more of that training around the state so that we don't have those issues. Because, you know, if you don't have the training, simply put, your exam is not going to be as good as it is if you have had the training because you have all of these physical things that we're talking about, but we haven't even started talking about the emotional mental toll, the effect that it has on the brain, the neurobiology of trauma. And the people who have been through that sexual assault nurse examiner training understand all of that. So they understand those things as they're talking to the patient, as they go through this very invasive exam. And I don't know that other medical professionals always know that. So I think it's really important to always have a sane administer the exam if possible. Of course, that is not always possible. I do understand that. It really does make it better for the patient. Uh, is this is the exam voluntary?
1: Yes, it is. It's a voluntary medical exam procedure, and after you explain to the patient what their options are, it is up to them of how they want to proceed.
0: Can they stop at any time, say a patient decides at first, yes, I do want to go through the exam, but they, they get into it, and it's it's too much, or for whatever reason, they decide they want to stop. Are they able
1: to stop? That is absolutely correct. That's what we explained to them in the beginning. They're reminded throughout the examination. It's giving empowerment back to the patient because obviously they've had a lot taken from them. So
0: important to make sure that the patient knows that they are the ones who have the power, they have the control, they're the ones making the decisions, no one else. We in this field, as medical professionals, law enforcement officers, prosecutors, civil attorneys, everybody needs to understand that they have been stripped of that. And it's, if we were to strip them of that as well, then we're harming them. We're not helping them. So how long does the exam take?
1: So the exam can vary depending on the type of assault how many injuries that the patient may have, and also, how is the patient doing? You know, we have to go very slow. On the average, it takes around four hours from when they first come into the emergency department until you discharge them.
0: Four hours. Yeah. That is awful. Absolutely. I can't imagine even going to the doctor and taking four hours, let alone having to go through this and it taking so long after you've been through what you've already been through. Who's typically in the room during the medical forensic exam?
1: I always ask the patient, is there somebody that you would like in the room with you while we we talk about this and we go through the physical exam? A parent, a sibling, a spouse, or um, an advocate? We have a community advocate that can come in here and be with you during this exam. Okay.
0: So let's walk through generally what the steps are. What are the steps a patient goes through after they present to the medical facility? As soon as they get into the ER, let's say, what happens?
1: First thing that they do is present to the triage so we can get them registered and get just some initial vital signs and get a little bit of idea about any allergies and things like that. The medical screen can be either very short or it can be extensive depending on what happens. The circumstances. Okay.
0: So we've got the triage, then you're going to do a medical history, then you get into the actual physical exam, right? The head to toe, and then we do some follow-up care. So let's go through those things. What happens once they have been cleared and you're ready to start your process?
1: Okay, so hopefully by that time, if you haven't had the opportunity to do do the medical screening, this is the time you would sit down and give the patient their options. You would discuss with them what a medical exam is versus a medical forensic exam. If they have an option, if they don't want to go through the evidentiary portion of the exam, that is totally their right to do so. Also, if they haven't reported by law enforcement, we give them their options if they wanna report. The beauty in Indiana is you don't have to report to law enforcement in order to get a medical frenzy exam. At that point, we go into a very detailed medical history. And when I mean detailed, I'm talking about their past medical conditions, anything from a child to their, their current age. Also, we wanna know what medications they're on. We also need to know the allergies. And then we do get an in-depth family history because that's part of what a, a clinician does. And then we do a, a social history on that patient. I'll give you an example. If somebody comes in that's not very clear, has a t- hard time concentrating, they're stammering. We're going to need to know was this a head injury that he sustained during the assault, or is there some type of alcohol or illicit mm-hmm. drug? Reward? So that has a lot to do with our medical diagnosis and treatment because we're going to have to stop at that point to do a diagnostic workup if we can't get a clear understanding of why they're so confused.
0: Say so you have a person present who maybe was like at a party and they remember having just a couple of drinks, but they're presenting very disoriented or they seem to be intoxicated at that point in time. You know that you're going to have to run some tests, do some blood work, see what the heck's in this person's system because they are far more intoxicated than they should be based on what they think they had to drink. Is that fair?
1: Correct. Or, and then we may need to do a head um, CAT scan. Could it be a um, head injury? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because a lot of times um, if there is alcohol or drugs on board, their memory just is not very clear. And so you really have mm-hmm. to investigate medical causes as opposed to causes by the assault. We need to take that into consideration. So once we get that intensive medical history, we also get a past abuse history because that's all about trauma informed care.
0: Can it even help you just ask better questions? And I don't mean just to be in trauma-informed, but in terms of their medical care, if they tell you they've had a long history of this, you may, you're going to be more sensitive and understand that maybe they're not going to be as forthcoming about certain things, and maybe you need to ask a question in a different way to make sure that you're giving them the best medical care possible.
1: Correct. That trauma will um, cause medical problems down the road, that's the ACEs, you know, adverse childhood events. We all know that that's a real thing. So again, that's why it's really important for us to get a good past medical history. Then another part is the uh, history of events. That's where the patient has to describe in detail what happened. And sometimes we preface going into this with, look, I have to ask some very sensitive probably embarrassing questions to you, but let me tell you why I need to know. It's gonna help me in looking for a potential injury or treating you for a potential infection or to collect potential evidence. That part's really crucial because you have to ask those questions not in a linear chronological order. You have to be appeasing to the patient's senses. What did you hear? What did you feel? What did you taste? What did you smell? Like last night, I had a patient, same thing. Until I went and started looking at the senses, I got like five other things out of her that she didn't tell us. It's because you have to zone in on that particular sense. That's how people relate in trauma situations. It's very fragmented, so you have to really focus them. That is such
0: a great example of why trauma-informed medical personnel are so crucial to doing a good job, because somebody who doesn't understand that, how to appeal to the senses and how trauma works within the brain, and that those senses do bring back memories that they don't even know they have, most people don't know that. It becomes, this is just a great example of how important it is to have that knowledge when you're doing uh, medical treatment of um, somebody who's been through an assault.
1: I agree. So then after we get that medical history and history of events, we move on to do a head-to-toe examination. And this one is their systems that we go through. Do you have a fever? Do you have abdominal pain? Do you have shortness of breath? Do you have chest pain? That's what we call a review of systems. Then that helps us focus in on the head-to-toe examination. So again, in the head-to-toe examination, that's also because of that a history of events that's going to guide me selecting that evidence. Okay, That was the
0: point I was going to make, Barb, so we are just, you know, right on the same wavelength here. Okay, so that, that we see here why the medical history is so important, because this is what you call a patient-focused physical exam, and you also see why it's going to vary widely in terms of length of the exam, because it's going to depend on what the patient has told you as you're going through that head-to-toe, you're going to examine things differently based on what happened.
1: Yeah. One of the tools that we use is what we call an alternate light source. They kind of help us guide over the body to see if there's any, like what we call fluorescence, which is maybe. Yeah.
0: Will you explain what that is, an alternative light source?
1: So basically it's a light and what it does is it, for lack of a better term, light up area on the body, which may be an area of fluids, can be uh, semen, saliva, urine. It can be anything, or it can be a very misleading and be like deodorant, perfume. Mm. So anything, anything with a protein substance is what, you, you know, you're using um, the lights source. That would give us an indication if we needed to swab the area or not. You have Q-tip swabs in your evidence kit. You just swab and roll those swabs over the area that fluoresces. So that's how you collect your evidence.
0: So, to give listeners an example of that, if you had an, a patient who said that the perpetrator s- sucked on her nipple, then you might do a swab of the nipple to see if you can pick up any bodily fluid from that Would that okay
1: yeah, if you notice know bite marks on them you 're going to want to swab over the bite mark usually the head to toe exam, we go from the top of their head down to the soles of their feet, so the very last thing that we do is actually the anal genital exam because of the sensitivity you know, inspecting and actually collecting evidence down there. That's the last thing that we do. And we always tell the patient, okay, at this point now I'm gonna be doing the pelvic exam and I show them the instrument, I show them the speculum, which for pelvic exams when you insert into the vaginal area so you can view the internal structures of the cervix and the vaginal wall. So I show them that instrument first. They come into to me and saying that they were just orally forced. There's absolutely no reason to do evidence collection on anogenital, okay? That'd be an unnecessary evidence collection.
0: And And why put
1: them through that if you don't have to, right? Exactly, so that's why it's important to find out what type of assault it was. So the anogenital is the last thing that we do. Again, we're inspecting the areas, we're swabbing the areas of the anogenital regions, we're looking for any abrasions, bruises, lacerations, we're looking for any foreign body. Um, There's been multiple times that there has been foreign bodies in the vaginal area that such as condoms we found in in the vaginal area and the patient had no idea how it got there again it could have been inserted when she was incapacitated I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. sure but she had no recollection so it is important that even if they don't want evidence collection I always say but can I at least do a visual inspection because I need to know your everything is going to be okay I know that sometimes is very difficult for a patient but even if they refuse evidence collection, those people need a thorough genital evaluation.
0: I mean, I can't even imagine how hard it is for the patient to be lying there and have to go through. I think about just having to go to the doctor as a woman for a yearly exam, and that is not comfortable. It is not pleasant. And you haven't even been through any of the trauma that these people have been through once they're there. So awful. Okay. Tell us, I want to hear about the exact types of evidence that can be gathered from this part of the exam and the tools that you use to gather that evidence.
1: One of the first things when we're doing a visual inspection of the skin and we see any abrasions, bruises, lacerations, usually we go ahead and document you know, those injuries right then and there and photograph them. Along with the ALS, um, there's also another little adjunct tool that we use in the specific anal genital areas called Toluidine dye. And what that is, it looks like an Easter egg dye. It's like a dark blue. We put it on areas of the anal genital that dye will adhere to exposed denuded skin. So that dye will adhere to that area to help us visualize. Now there's- so Then some- you're gonna be
0: able to see if there's actual injury inside. Correct. Now, I wanna point out really quick, vast majority of sexual assaults, there is no physical right. injury. I don't know what the exact number is. I know that one study at one point in time said over 70%. Um, I'm not sure to that. Is that-
1: Oh yeah. Is was- what you see? Yes, that's correct.
0: Okay, what other um, things do you do during this part of the exam?
1: So at this point, even prior to doing the whole physical, exam, there's certain labs that we draw that we actually want to look for of types of infection in the exposure to gonorrhea, chlamydia, or trichomonas, which are se- um, sexually transmitted infections. People say, well, those types of infections are not going to be noted From that particular salt which is correct because it usually takes around 10 days for incubation of those type of organisms but you want to know if they have any pre-existing now people say well why would you want to know that well here's why it's a public health issue if that patient is having consensual relations with their intimate partner and they have a, an STI and it's noted on the exam, you need to let that patient know because she'll continue to go back with that intimate partner. So it has nothing to do with the assault. This is all about a public health issue and addressing potential infections pre existing.
0: So that's why you may take a blood sample from the patient?
1: Yes. We look, uh, typically CDC is recommending that everybody in their lifetime from ages 14 to 65 should be tested one time for hepatitis B and C, which we do. And we have inadvertently found that where the patient had not known. So it's a great thing to check for syphilis, hepatitis B, antigen and hepatitis C antibody. Early intervention, if we know they have it, we can get them into primary care and start any type of focused treatment. I know, again, that's not assault related, but this is all about caring for the patient and their medical needs.
0: Do you ever collect saliva from the patient?
1: We do. That's also in the kit and it's just another swab and that's just used as the patient's DNA standards. Right. And then
0: I just wanted to make sure that we kind of talked about what the buckle is and why it's taken that when it goes to the lab. You have to have something to compare it against when you have multiple samples of DNA. So if you have a perpetrator and the patient, we gotta know what's what. And so that's why it has to be taken from the patient as well. So you're talking swabs, photographs, you know, outside all over the body, inside the vagina, outside the vagina, swabbing the anus sometimes depending on the account of events, using the T dye, all of these things. What else? Are we missing anything?
1: We usually do a rapid HIV.
0: So you've got a person here who has gone through a very traumatic assault and they don't have to, they don't just have what's happening to them right now on their mind. They have to think about the future because in some scenarios, they could have a pregnancy or an STI or even life-threatening STI like HIV to contend with as well so you have to think about all of these things when you are administering these exams on patients.
1: Yeah and sometimes I just even think of how I could be so precise and concise with the patient because it is so much that they have to consider in such a short period of time and they don't know me it's episodic care you know you have this you know stranger medical person coming in and asking all these very personal questions and then you have to throw it on by the way you know you might want to consider maybe antiviral therapy you know to prevent against exposure
0: wow that's just a lot hard to handle do we talk about fingernail scrapings that's sometimes another one that you do
1: that's all part of the kit
0: on the evidence collection so once you have finished with the head to toe what comes next
1: at this point We ask the patient, look, we have some clothes for you that's donated to us by a women's group. We ask them if they wanna take a shower and we give them the necessary toothbrush, toothpaste, shampoo, conditioner, soap, if they wanna go take a shower. Probably about 90% of the time we're taking up on it. Sometimes they are just so exhausted after this and they just wanna go home to their own bed and I don't blame them. Usually while they're getting showered, we start looking at their labs. At that time, we start getting the patient's discharge ready and going over where she's going to, you know, a safe disposition, the advocacy, where she can go for a civil protective order, where she can go for counseling. We have a great program at IU Health where I work. It's called the Medical Legal Partnership, where Indiana Legal Services will Mm -hmm. provide civil services to patient in need, like they can, if they're being, uh, wanna get out of their housing because of the assault, if it happened there, they can help right to get them out of there. If they need other things like they need to apply for Medicaid or they were denied disability. So there's things that these civil attorneys can do for our patients that mean the world to them because they've never been able to get that type of help because they couldn't afford an attorney to do so. So those are the things that we screen the patient for early on. Is Also Marion County Public Health, they will send a nurse out there to follow up with the sexual assault patient. making they are it's wonderful witnesses and they're not having any other um, type of problems. That um, Another they-
0: example of why that history is so important at the beginning of the process in terms of where they're going to go. You know, I think it becomes a little bit different at this point if the perpetrator is known to them or if they're not. The vast majority of sexual assaults, the perpetrator is known to the victim. And so a safety plan has to be established. I know that starts before they ever even leave the hospital with the nurse. The mental health issues, pregnancy, SCI, talked about all of the different medical issues that have to be taken care of to be able to discharge them. Other than the directions for further treatment, what happens when it comes to reporting to law enforcement or not? Have they usually decided at that point whether or not they would like to remain anonymous versus go ahead and report?
1: Right. So usually that's one of the things I address up front with them right away. And it's either yes or no. And I even say, well, how about if I give you the names of the districts in your area um, and then you can call and make the report when you're ready and and they'll do, they'll take that.
0: Okay. Good point that they are not forced to report. It is again, the, their choice and the kits will be kept. It depends on where you are. Again, it's obviously going to vary state by state, the, the laws are different. And even in Indiana, it varies differently from Indianapolis to any other county. If it happens, if your exam is in any county besides Marion County, then the state police lab is who processes it. If you are in Marion County, the Marion County has its own crime lab that processes all those. Typically speaking, the kits are kept for at least one year so that if a patient decides that they do wanna report, that they can still do it. now. The law says that the kit can be destroyed anytime after that. Often they are not. But I want to make sure that people understand that even if it is, even if it is five years down the road, it's still worth reporting it. The kits do help, but they are not the be-all, end-all for these cases. So if there is a situation where it did happen longer ago than that and you, you even did get the sexual assault kit done, still report it. It's, it's so important, and there still may be something that we can do for them. They are important for prosecution, but they aren't everything. We have caught multiple serial rapists because of sexual assault kits. It does increase the likelihood of holding them accountable and prevents future sexual assaults from occurring. So they they do bring with them great significance. I have won many cases because of the good work that was done by the sexual assault nurse examiner. Do you think that this process, as part of the process, often re-traumatizes a victim?
1: It depends. I've had a a patient who said to me, she goes, you know, this examination just feels like I was assaulted all over again. I mean, she was very kind. I mean, we had a good rapport and that, but she was expressing to me, this is a very humiliating examination and having to ask those questions over and again and, and think about it, I can't imagine. And of course, you know, the whole neurobiology trauma, they don't even start to really piecemeal things together in mm-hmm. a sequential type of event until they've had at least three good rest cycles. So, which is why law enforcement doesn't really conduct their in depth interview mm-hmm. until about 72 hours afterwards. So, It's like, that's one of the things that I always cognizant of. I said, I always ask my patient, I said, look, I really want you to get some good sleep here in the next 72 hours. I'm going to prescribe a mild sleeping pill for you just only for three days because I want her to be able to sleep because that's tough sometimes.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. So yeah, again, just another
1: example of why
0: being trauma-informed is so very important for everyone who is coming into contact with a sexual assault survivor. Okay, we've gone very deep into the process that a victim goes through. What else do you think that listeners need to know about this process and about what they go through?
1: Number one, I always talk to the patient about if she has questions. If you have questions about your kit, the person that can help you answer that is either your detective or the prosecution. If you have questions about your medical care, I'm the person. We are the people you need to call. If you have a question about what does the criminal justice process look like, as they said, your advocacy is going to be able to help you on that. So I think it's really important that that's wrote down for them because they're mm-hmm. not gonna remember what you told them at that time. So the more in depth that your discharge instructions are on paper, the better off that they'll be because they can refer back to them or at least a family or friend member. I've had multiple family members call me and say, Hey, I read through your discharge instructions and I I have a question about this this is not going to be easy for anybody this destroys not only the patient but also the family and there is absolutely no guarantee the criminal justice process is actually going to bring justice in even when they do it's still not going to take away what happened it's really important to that patient that's when they come back to me maybe three or four days later for their labs and, and follow up for additional medicines if they haven't made that counseling appointment, I sit them down at the phone and we make it right then and there because it's hard for them to do that. It's just one more thing that they have to think about or do.
0: That's a very important point to make that it does take a village to be there for people who've gone through this. It's the multidisciplinary effort is super important. The medical staff, the law enforcement, the prosecutors. And as you mentioned, the long term and that's why i'm so proud to be doing what i'm doing now because i'm focusing more on the long term for the survivors who have to deal with these long-standing effects for the rest of their lives so barb thank you truly for taking the time to do this you have a kind heart and more determination than anyone i know i certainly wouldn't mess with you i have learned a lot from you and i know a lot of other people have too so thank you thank you thank you Thank you to our listeners. If you're tuning in here, you care. If you find value in our program, please continue to tune in and to share this podcast with others. As always, please submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.